0: Our great God in heaven, we praise you. And we do worship you this day. We thank you for the glories of your word. And we ask that you would grant us understanding into your word. And that you would grant me the grace that I need to preach your word. In a manner which is pleasing to you. In a manner which is beneficial to us. And will cause us to grow in our Christian faith and knowledge. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Boys and girls, believe it or not, there was a time when the internet did not exist. It didn't. It's only about 20 years old or so, 22 for most of us. There was a time when they had these things called antenna that would make your TV work. Those of you who are my age, or maybe a little younger, and certainly a little older, remember having to move the antennas around, and sometimes having to grab a yard of tin foil and put little snowballs of tin foil onto the top of the antenna, and then bossing a younger brother or sister around to move the hold, hold the tin foil, hold the tin foil, so I can see the, so I can see the, the show. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Well, back in those days, um, a lot of things happened. But I read a humorous account of two boys, two cousins, who went to a family reunion during these days when the antenna was still the DSL of the world. And the antenna on their grandmother's house was up high on top of the pitch of the roof, Uh, very similar to the way it is uh, over at the manse. And being boys, not necessarily being boys, but just being young, one was 10 and I think one was 11, they were about the same age, They went outside, they were bored. It's a family reunion. What are they going to do? In those days, there was no internet. There was no Game Boy. There were no games to play. There was nothing they could do. So they went outside, grabbed a couple of stones, and began a fairly innocent game, which probably many of the men my age or older have done. They tried to see who could hit the antenna first. See who could do it. Relatively harmless, in theory. Then, of course... They missed, and one of them smashed a window, which is not harmless, made quite a racket. And they were caught, of course. The adults came out, and both of their fathers began to interrogate them, and interrogate is the correct word. And they were honest about it, because there was no other way to go. We have stones in our hands, we were outside, now the window's broke. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out exactly what occurred. And the one boy said, I did it. But I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't do it on purpose. And then he began to look to his cousin for support. And his cousin told the truth. He did it. And he didn't do it on purpose. We were trying to hit the antenna. The younger one starts crying. We were just trying to hit the antenna. Didn't do it on purpose. Now the boys told the truth. They weren't intentionally trying to break the window. If they wanted to break a window, there were windows that were lower that they easily could have hit. They got one that was way up near towards the attic. They didn't do it on purpose. Let me ask you this. How many times in your life, no matter what your age is, have you said something similar? I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't do it on purpose. It goes by other sayings as well. I didn't mean it. That wasn't what I meant. And sometimes we try and deflect the responsibility to the other person. You misunderstood me. You're not getting what I'm saying. You don't think that I intentionally did that on purpose, do you? These things happen all the time. I didn't do it on purpose. Now the question is, and I'd like you to reflect upon those times in your life when you have had to say that, particularly if you're an adult. Is that a godly characteristic? Well, it is if you're, if you're telling the truth, if you're fessing up. Hey, I'm sorry I hurt you, I didn't do it on purpose. That's, that's a different context. You know, it's just a clarifying comment. But my fear as a pastor is that many of us, many Christians, many adult Christians don't live life on purpose. We don't do things very intentionally. Our lives become chaotic. Our lives become disorganized. Now being disorganized isn't necessarily a sin. I can assure you that being organized is a more pleasant state of existence. But we all get a little flustered and chaotic from time to time. Some of us are a little more organized than others. But from what I have gathered, it is a skill that can be learned. And most of us are still in the process of learning that skill. But think about it. We are called to live with an intentional purpose. If we don't have an intentional purpose to our life, what will be the result? We will bounce back and forth like a pinball machine. Um, Some of you younger people don't know what pinball machines are, but the balls will, will bounce back and forth, and we won't know where we are. We'll go around bouncing around making all kinds of noise, sometimes landing in the gutter, the side of the machine, and having to insert another quarter when starting over. I'm definitely showing my age today with the antenna and the pinball references. We want to live on purpose The goal would be to be able to say that every thought, every word, and every action that we do every day of our lives is done with an absolute intentional purpose and that that purpose would be godly to glorify God. Now, that's a tall order. You're not going to do that. But that should be the goal, to live on purpose. To do things with an intent. Whenever we're going to do a job, we usually, whether we know it or not, we might be unconscious because we know how to do the job so well. We do have an intentional purpose. I'm going to put this together. I'm going to make this dish. And you know exactly what you need. You don't have to think about it. For instance, I know how to make hamburgers. I'm not a gourmet cook, but it does not take a gourmet cook to make a hamburger, particularly if it's a pre-frozen hamburger. You take it out, put it in the skillet, a little oil in the skillet, and then watch it until it's cooked, take it out, turn it off, and put it on a bun and put some ketchup on it. It's not very difficult to do. Anybody can learn how to make a can of tuna fish with some mayonnaise. It's not that big of a deal, and you don't have to think about it. I'm going to intentionally get a can over. I'm going to grab the can of Starkist tuna. Now I will get the mayonnaise. You don't have to do that. But for the larger issues of our life, and particularly for young people as you grow older, you want to live with an intentional purpose. And here is the reason why. God does everything with an intentional purpose. Do you think God can ever say, Oh, I didn't think that that was going to happen. Do you think God is ever surprised? Ever? I didn't see that one coming. I didn't know that that was going to happen. No, the scriptures make it very clear that all things fall out exactly how God wants them to. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The good things that happen to our lives. The things that are painful. They all fall out from the decree of God. Now that is scary on one hand. But it's also very comforting to know that, oh, God didn't get thrown a purple here. It was a curveball to me. I just got hit in the head with something. I did not see that coming. And it is not a sin for us to be able to say, I didn't see that one coming. That came out of, you know, what do we say? That came out of left field. Ironically, in baseball, things don't come out of left field. Things go into left field. But things happen to us, and we don't see them coming because we're not perfect. We don't possess perfect knowledge. We're not clairvoyant. We can't see into the future. And God doesn't expect us to. God expects us to live by faith. The book of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you see it, you don't have to really believe it, because you can see it. i like you to just pause and think about your Christian faith for a quick moment. You have placed your eternal destiny in the actions of a man, who claimed to be the Son of God, who claimed to be perfectly righteous, and who lived 2,000 years ago for approximately 33 years and was executed by the Romans as a petty criminal. And you believe that he will return again to judge the living and the dead. We just professed that. You haven't seen any of that, have you? We weren't there 2,000 years ago, and we haven't seen Him return yet, and and people who are unbelievers mock us for that. They say, He hasn't come back yet. You're still holding on to that? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. He is going to return. He is going to return. And each day we wait for Him patiently. So it is not a sin when life throws us a curveball and we don't see it coming and we get hit and we fall down. That is not a sin. I don't want you to think that. But it's important for us to realize that when those curveballs hit us, that God saw it coming. Now, that causes us another problem. We realize, why did he let that pitch hit me in the head? That hurt, Lord. I didn't see it coming. That hurt. That hurt me a lot. That's a question that there is no answer to. That's what faith is. That when life throws us curveballs and we get hit and we get hurt and we fall down and we acknowledge that God not only saw the curveball, but he decreed the curveball and we still believe that is what faith is. To be able to say, I still believe in this loving God, even though He has just laid me down, as Job says, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. That is the key. The first key is to realize God does everything with intentional purpose. Think about um, Genesis 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there, because that's not going to be my primary text. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the description of God creating the universe. And it's important for us to realize a couple of things from those passages. One, God existed before the creation of the universe. God existed before the creation of the universe. The text doesn't tell us anything about God's eternal existence. It just presupposes, it assumes that He was there. He had to have been there in order for Him to create it. There are some people who say God created himself. That's, that's wrong. He didn't create himself. He has always existed. You cannot figure that one out. It's fun to think about. It should cause us to be overwhelmed by his power. It should cause us to be overwhelmed by his majesty. But is nothing we can rationally figure out. A perfect being that has always existed. Nothing we can truly wrap our minds around all the way. Now it's important for us to realize that. Because if God existed before He created the universe, then that means He existed outside of His universe, which is, again, something we can't understand. That means God exists outside of time and space. We can't figure that one out. We have to put things in boxes. We have to have a map. He doesn't have to have a map. He is a spirit He has no need to take up space. There was no such thing as nothing, because God has always existed. There's no such thing as chance, unless you're talking about flipping a coin. Chance is a mathematical equation. When people say the universe came about by chance, that is one of the the most illogical things anybody could say. Because then you can say, well, what are the mathematical chances? What are the odds of that? Do you have some numbers for me? If you flip a coin, and you call heads or tails, what are the odds it's going to be one or the other? Every single time. 50-50. That's chance. There's only two options, and one of them has to occur. But if nothing ever existed, there can be no chance, because there is no thing. Nothing. But there's always been a God. Now, when we realize that God exists apart from his universe, that is a source of great comfort. That's not a part of of abstract theology. Because if God exists outside of his universe, then that means he's in control of his universe, which means he is sovereign over his universe, which means he can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, to anyone he wants, in any manner that he wants. That includes us. That's the first step to realize that we're creatures and that he is the creator. It's a source of great humility. Now, it can be very scary when we think about this, God. And believe it or not, many people, many fine Christians are underwhelmed by God. They believe in him, but they're underwhelmed by him. What I mean by that is they don't pause and think of the ramifications of him being this powerful. You are in the exact pew that you are, in the exact position that God has decreed from all eternity that you would be. You chose the clothes you wore, but he decreed it from what we call eternity past. That's a little weird to think about, isn't it? It's scary when we think about the harsh things we go through, but it's, if we think about it properly, it's a source of great comfort because he tells us that no matter what we go through, he is going to be there with us. His intention for us is that we reflect his glory. You see, Genesis 1.26 then moves us into the creation of man. And we find that God created man after his own image. Okay? So, what is God's intention for man to be created in his image? He brings a number of things in the text to give us a clue. He brings all of these animals to Adam. Who does the naming? It's a little song, right? God gave names to all the animals. Adam gave names to all the animals. Man. Man gave names to all the animals. I don't know the melody we didn't quite learn that one in catholic school but i have heard it in other excuse me i have heard it in various vbs lectures man gave names to all the animals this shows us excuse me i'm still battling this cough this shows us the high regard that god has for mankind the high regard he has for us He has given us the privilege and the honor of looking after the rest of His creation, of taking control over it, of taking dominion over it. This does not mean that we are allowed to do anything we want with the creation. It means that we have been given the honor of creating, or rather really constructing with the raw materials that God has given us. And many of you grew up in agricultural households. You grew up on a farm. You plant stuff. You tend animals. I've never really done that. I have planted some things, and I've taken care of a few pets. And sometimes they're annoying, and sometimes the the plants don't, well, the plants have never grown for me. I've never been able to grow anything except silk flowers. You buy them and they never die. I don't have a green thumb. It's the darkest shade of black that you can imagine. Give me a plant, and I will not make it prosper very well, no matter what it is. That's a great honor to do, to use God's soil to grow something, to use God's soil to provide food for other people to eat. And then you can uh, spoke that out in any field. Others of us build houses, to shelter the animals, to shelter ourselves and our family. Others designed the houses through the use of mathematics. They're architects. They designed the houses to make sure that they are safe, to make sure that they are built properly. It's all of one scene. This is part of being the image of God. To do what God does in a limited sense. God creates out of nothing. We have the privilege of doing all of these things, no matter what you do, is part of God's plan of being an image bearer of God. That's the intentional purpose that God has created you for. Now, as a, that goes for everybody that you'll ever meet. Now, as a Christian, someone who is a new creation, according to 2 Corinthians 5... If any man, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creation. We have to ask, what is the image of God for us now? How does that work for us besides our unsaved neighbors? The key is this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Paul tells them, And this was a church that was at strife. They were fighting amongst each other. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let's just dissect this passage one thing at a time. Because we find some practical steps that we can implement if we want to live our lives with intentional purpose. The first thing is to obey from a sincere heart. You can't you can't glorify God with an intentional purpose if you're not in obedience to him. That's why Paul says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, and then he reminds them, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul was in prison when he wrote this epistle. He had been in Philippi, he had helped establish the church, but now he's in prison, and he has heard from one of their delegates who had brought him care packages, what we would call them. He had heard from the delegate that uh, things aren't really that great in Philippi. People are fighting. People are fighting over silly stuff. Okay, So Paul writes them this letter, and he tells them to obey. What are we to obey? We're to obey the commandments of God. And the commandments of God are distilled into two things. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the entirety of our lives. Whenever we're doing anything, we need to be thinking somehow, am I obeying God? Am I obeying those two great commandments? Or am I veering off the course and doing something else? The second thing, and still found in verse 12, is that we work out our salvation and fear with trem, So work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This gets back to what I mean by people being over-underwhelmed with God. There are a lot of Christians that just kind of flit about. They just live their lives with, not even without any godly intention, not even without any godly purpose, but it's almost as if they're glib about their salvation almost glib. Well, well, I believe in Christ and I'm forgiven and, you know, um, I don't want to go too deep into things and, uh, you know, I, I do as best as I can. That type of glibness, that type of casual approach to God is not seen in the scriptures. The God that we serve is a God who overwhelms people, who, who causes great trepidation in people. When people encounter the living God, they're not usually in a great mood. It's very important for us to realize from the gospel readings from last week and this week, that God sent the angel Gabriel to Zacharias and to Mary. He didn't come himself. He sent the angel. Angels are emissaries. And Gabriel seems to be the one who's given a name to do a particular job in a particular case, to bear this great news to these two persons. And we have no evidence from the text that they're very overwhelmed by the angel. They certainly pay attention, but if God himself were to arrive on the scene, they would be completely overwhelmed. So I encourage you to become overwhelmed with God. Because to live with intentional purpose means to work out our salvation. How, what is, how does Paul play, play, phrase it? With fear and trembling. It's a perfectly rational thing to be a little nervous about God. This is a God who has always existed, remember? So you have no claim on Him. I don't have a claim on Him. This is a God who has always existed, so complaining about Him will get us nowhere no matter how rough we have at complaining against his providence, is a zero-sum game. Whatever God places on our plate is there so that we can work through it and become more like him, to reflect him more grandly, to reflect him with more intentional purpose amongst those who are unbelievers. And we'll see that in just a moment. Romans 9 tells us the famous thing about the potter and the clay. Famous saying. God is the potter and we are the clay. That's a terrifying thing to think about. What can a potter do to the clay? Whatever he or she wants, right? What can the clay do? Last time I looked, clay was um, inanimate. It didn't, doesn't breathe. It's rock, ground up, right? Rock and water, basically. Dirt. If we're the clay, that means God can shape us and mold us. And here's the key. God wants to shape us and mold us for our good. He wants to shape us and mold us to become more like Christ. To adequately reflect the the glories of the risen Christ. This means we shouldn't complain. Because God, in verse 13, is He who works in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. And then in verse 14... All of this causes us to do all things without complaining and disputing. Why should we not complain and fight? Why should we not complain and fight? Because in verse 15, the reason, the purpose, God wants us to not complain and not fight, isn't so that we'll be more happy, even though we will be. It isn't so that we'll have a nicer life, even though we will be. Complaining doesn't make you feel good, does it? Does fighting make you feel good? If it does, it's a sign that something's, you know, at that moment at least, there's a glitch. Complaining usually makes us feel worse. To fulfill our destiny, we find this in verse 15, so that we may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We have to realize that the world is a crooked and perverse place. And the intentional purpose of our life is to shine as lights in the world. Now, George Bush I, the elder Bush, um, people make fun of him for his... Uh, convention speech about a thousand points of light. It's a common thing. Oh, yeah, a thousand points of light, and people laugh at it. In a, he wasn't re- referring to it in a biblical sense, but in a very real sense, whoever wrote that speech hit on something very important. As Christians, wherever we go, we are to be lights. And that's how the church is supposed to function. A thousand points of lights, wherever an individual Christian goes, wherever a Christian family goes, the light is supposed to shine. That's what's supposed to happen. We have to ask, are we doing that? Are we acting as lights in the world? Do we want to act as lights in the world? That is the purpose that God created you for. And I urge you to make that your intentional purpose. To be one of those lights. And again, it goes back to one of those little children's ditties, doesn't it? This little light of mine, I'm going to make it shine. It's cute, it's fun to watch the children sing it, but it is actually very good theology coming right from Philippians 2. Wherever you go, make it your intentional purpose to be the light of God, because we live in a dark world that needs all the light it can get. Shall we pray? Well, Lord our God in heaven, your Son is the light of the world. And we ask that you would grant us the grace we need to extend that light with intentional purpose in the lives that you have granted us. In Christ's name, amen.